You're listening to All The Best. I'm Maddie McQueen. In a lot of ways, 2020 has been a year of waiting. Waiting for case numbers to drop, borders to open and restrictions to lift, all so we can get back to our normal lives. Or at least have enough certainty to figure out what we're going to do next. This week, as state borders open up and lockdown restrictions ease, we have stories from people who are still left in limbo. In our first story, producers Max Rowley and Naveen Samreji speak to Dane Delion, a spokesperson for refugee solidarity Mianjin. Dane was in lockdown for a few weeks. Her friends have been locked down for eight years. For most of us, 2020 has been a strange year, and that's certainly true for Dane DeLeon. I think about that often, where sometimes, did I ask to be here in 2020? Um, this was not on my vision board, no. I said at the start of the year, this is going to be the chillest year <laughs> of my life. Like, I thought I was going to finish my master's and try to get more people of color involved in community organizing, um, go back to the Philippines for a little bit, and you know, exercise, have more smoothies. And that's not what it looked like. 2020 curfews. It was a plot twist. <laughs> for one thing, Dane didn't expect to end up in the police watch house, or for that matter, who she'd find when she got out. I remember the first time when I was arrested, I gave my phone to somebody and their first instinct was to call my mom. And that was so, I was like, you are definitely white. You would never do that if you were someone from an ethnic background. You don't call someone's mom when you get arrested. But my mom was waiting outside the watch house. It was, it was the worst feeling in the world. I was like, I am canceled. Did you know she was going <laughs> to no, be there? No, I didn't. What was the expression on her face like? Yeah, it was just... You know, with like ethnic moms and they're like, we're talk about this at home, that look, because I had some friends there. And so she wasn't yelling at me there because she was just looking at me like, we're going to talk about this later. <laughs> Dane's 26 years old, studying her Masters of Development Practice in Brisbane, though she's originally from the Philippines. And earlier in the year, not long after Queensland and other states went into lockdown, Dane received a message out of the blue. The message came from some refugees being detained inside a hotel in inner-city Brisbane. A few of the men inside followed me on Instagram and or Facebook and just let us know what's happening. Dane had heard some news about another hotel in Melbourne, the Mantra. That's when they did the hunger strikes. Mm -hmm. And I think at the same time that happened. But before that, I didn't know that there was a prison um, inside Kangaroo Point. And I think that's... I guess before all the protests, nobody knew that there was a prison. I know a lot of people that go to uni or even live in surrounding suburbs didn't know about it. I guess that's always been the government's plan, right, to um, out of sight, out of mind when they were in offshore processing centres. But now they're here, it's almost impossible to ignore. The Kangaroo Point Central Hotel was holding over 100 men, many of whom had come to Australia for medical treatment under the now-repealed Medivac legislation. Dane had heard of the bill. But I guess I just thought with Medivac, because he came here to seek treatment, I didn't think that they would lock people out. I 
in detention, especially because a lot of people came for mental health reasons due to long-term detention. I guess I didn't think that their strategy was to lock them up some more. And so when Dane was contacted by a few of the men inside, she had to help. It was during COVID times as well. So um, I was doing a few like mutual aid groups with people to support uh, people around my suburb who couldn't go outside and just delivering um, food for them or getting picking up groceries for them. So I was already in that framework of community and mutual aid and reaching out to people. So it, it just was one of those things where I said, I need groceries. Also, I need to free uh, men in detention. This Can anyone help me with these things? The men had been protesting from their balconies, holding signs and banners for passers-by to see. And so Dane and some other protesters joined them from the street. The men weren't allowed to leave the hotel, and because of COVID restrictions, they weren't allowed visitors either. For the protesters, COVID restrictions meant they had to pretend to exercise as they demonstrated outside the detention centre. But despite these challenges and a heavy police presence, the protests grew as more and more people heard about the men's plight, and restrictions began to ease in Brisbane. So we're outside here. They've tried to remove um, refugees. After a few months of the protests, one of the more outspoken men, Fahad, was transferred to a higher security detention centre near the Brisbane airport. I remember the first night when um, Farhad was taken and, you know, we tried to stop the transfer and then somebody, one of our friends got his tent out from his car and he's like, well, we're not leaving. And we just never left after that incident. We just had the clothes in our back. People started coming with sleeping bags and food. And I remember we were thinking... We were so blind, just so optimistic at that time, and we said, "Okay, if we hang in here until Wednesday, I think that'll be good, and maybe we will win this." The blockade had been up a few days when council officers and police came to remove some of the protesters' tents and marquees. Dame was live streaming when a police officer gave her a move-on direction. If she fails to comply, she will be arrested. So I'm going to give you one last opportunity to comply. The direction, or else you will be arrested. Sorry, we, we actually need um, confirmation from the business that we're supposedly get, causing anxiety. All right, at yeah. this point in time, as I told you, my name is Consul Dunn. You're going to be placed under arrest for contravene requirement, okay? Wait, no. Okay, no, wait, wait, wait. Hang on, no. wait. Wait, I have it. You have People tried to de arrest me by sitting around. Um, us, but the co- because I'm so small, the cops just picked me up and put me in the van. We gave you ample opportunity to comply with no, the direction, didn't. and you failed to do so. No, you didn't. Were you nervous? With my mom, yes. With the cops, no. I'm not afraid of anything except for my mother. <laughs> so I think I know she understands and she cares, but my mother very loves very aggressively and shows it. Yeah, very tough. I just told her that it wasn't a real charge. And it was fine. Eventually, the charges were dropped, so it was true. I think my parents, deep down, they understand, you know, what I'm doing and why I'm doing this. I think it's more the concern of my safety, which which makes a lot of sense. I think any parent would be concerned their child um, 
you know, five cops taking them in a van. What did you feel at the time? I think I was more, I guess, concerned about people, how the blockade was going to go. Because when I got arrested, the Brisbane City Council was trying to take all the tents down and was trying to get rid of the blockade. And I was so scared that when I come out, it won't be there anymore. But it was nice because, not nice, but my arrest was live streamed. And a lot of people did say that after seeing that, that's when they felt the need to come down and come help out. The blockade had survived. And we'll said, okay, maybe two weeks. We'll see what happens in two weeks. And then, like, months passed and it's just grown and grown. And I think it's just been really special to... That's one of those moments when people feel empowered because you're actively, you know, stopping transfers and putting pressure on the government. It's not a good look for the government if the community is sleeping on the floor because they want the friends inside to be released. From there, they began planning some bigger rallies. And thousands of people turned out, blocking streets and attracting a lot of attention. I think, for me, it felt empowering to see people show up. And the most special thing is to be able to hear from the guys inside. So, you know, it's not somebody speaking on behalf of them. They're just saying what they're feeling. I think specifically the Kangaroo Point situation, it's so surreal to just have them so close to us, just two metres away, but this arbitrary border that the government's created, which prevents them from being out in the community. And for Dane and the others, they've always stressed that their protest is in solidarity with the men and guided by them. They have been the people that I turn to that have given me the strength and given me the motivation and... Um, they're so wise and understanding because they know the system for, um, what, seven years. All we need to do is be there and listen because they have answers. So for the foundations of it, since we said we're going to center the voices of those affected and those um, who we will see as leaders, it's been, I guess, quite natural and quite organic that we're just the community, and some of our community members are locked up inside, and that should be enough to bond you together. In a way, that bond has become an integral part of Dane's activism. She says she spends up to seven hours a day on the phone with the men. Yeah, I, it, I think a big part of it is friendship. When I ask most of the time, what can help, what can I do more, they always just say conversations like these help. And... Yeah, a lot of it is just maybe even just for an hour or two for them to not think about the fact that they're detained inside and just talk about sometimes they want to hear about your mundane things about your day. Same conversations like, have you eaten? They say yes. I had chicken and rice. And they ask me if I've eaten. And they'll say, no, I forgot. And then they'll remind me to eat. A few of them um, have plants that they talk about, which it's very nice. Um, coffee in the morning, almost the same as the mundane things out here, but just in awful, awful conditions. And there's no space there to go for a walk, but 
A lot of the times they talk about what they see outside the window. They'll see a couple going out on a date. They'll see somebody getting their car washed. Or they'll see drunk people downstairs on a Friday night. Oftentimes talking about what they can see outside the city that they can't touch. Yeah. For almost 80 days, the men saw their friends on the street, 24 hours a day, seven days a week. But in August, after making so much noise, the blockade quietly scaled back, and the men were still inside. It does feel like a bit of a goodbye to let go of the blockade, but a part of me, like my back was hurting. I have to see a physio now because my back is just from sleeping in my car for that long. There was a little bit of relief. And the community is still there, even though I think it sucks not having it visibly there because it's, you know, it's so special to have this blockade in the middle of the city trying to free the guys. But Dane says this is far from the end. Uh, Because we've spent during the blockade time upskilling people and making sure we have police liaison trainings and legal briefings and um, even trainings on cultural sensitivity with engaging with the men inside. So people are a lot more empowered now. It was like a, a boot camp or something. <laughs> yeah, it kind of felt like it, yeah. I think we really emphasize that, where we don't want just good moments and then you go home and then you take your activist box. We really emphasize on that invisible labor What's on the mood on the vision board now? The vision board now is to end mandatory detention and, um, you know, abolish the police. Does it have a timeline? Um, I really would like to. um, I'm hoping. I'm still fighting for freeing. We want the guys to be free by the end of the year. Do you think it'll happen? I think so, yeah. If we say no, then that gives the possibility of it not happening. So I would say yes. What about... Your friends inside, do you think they are optimistic? Um, They do get moments of hope. And I think when they see the community showing up, for the longest time, they felt so alone and all they've seen were circle guards and police. To see just people out there saying that they're welcome and we love them and we support them um, has meant a lot to them. You know, after actions, it's quite distressing and you need to debrief because it is quite traumatic with all the police. And usually I feel very tired physically, but usually I feel so full because I'll get the messages from the guys inside saying how much hope it's given them and how much it lifted their mood or maybe they've been having a bad week and that was the one thing that made them smile. So I think moments like that sustain me. That story was produced by Max Rowley and Naveen Samreji. Mel Chun was the supervising producer. You can learn more about Refugee Solidarity Mianjin at freethekp120.com.au. You're listening to All The Best. I'm Maddie McQueen. All the Best is a place for storytellers to learn how to make audio documentaries, essays, and fiction. If you'd like to produce a story for the show, get in touch. Visit allthebestradio.com and send us your pitch. 
We'll pair you with one of our supervising producers to help make your story. In our last episode, we heard from temporary visa holders being kept out of Australia by COVID travel restrictions. But it's not just temporary residents who aren't being allowed back in. Over 38,000 Australian citizens are registered with the Department of Foreign Affairs and Trade as being overseas and wanting to come home. This number is growing and some estimates place the real number as high as 100,000. Many are broke, in dangerous situations and feeling abandoned by their government. Dan Simo brings us two of their stories. Julie Noble never planned to move to Turkey, but she did, to the northern city of Eskashir in November of last year. She moved for a reason a lot of people move overseas. Well, I married a Turk, actually, and so it's very, very difficult, actually, to get someone from Turkey into Australia. Like, the government has put in place extremely difficult visa measures for any Turk. So I decided, well, I'll come over here and probably, you know, give it a year and see how I go living over here. But, um, you know, I hadn't anticipated a lot of things. Julie knew her life in Turkey would be very different. But she felt determined to give it a good go. I had sort of thought that, you know, I might be able to work at some point or, you know, have a fairly sort of normal yet slightly different life to that in Australia. And I was really quite optimistic and um, I was really quite hopeful about, you know, probably being a fairly good life. By the start of April, like most places in the world, Turkey went into lockdown. COVID cases were rising and Julie soon realised it was time to go. There was one repatriation flight to Australia in early May, but the ticket was almost $7,000, payable that very day. Julie rushed to transfer money between different bank accounts, but she missed out. She couldn't get on that flight. So that was a bit devastating and I thought, well, that's it. I'm pretty much stuck here now. Just, you know, try and make the best of it. By the end of May, Turkey opened up again, and Julie thought she'd be able to fly home. She was eating into her savings because she couldn't find work and her husband had lost his job during the lockdown. And now there was a new problem. Australia had introduced the caps. Let's rewind back to early March. Originally, Australian citizens and residents could come back into the country and simply self-isolate at home for 14 days. Then, at the end of March, that changed. Since then, everyone arriving into Australia has to go through hotel quarantine. And there are a limited number of spaces every week. This means that airlines offer less flights, usually only in business and first class. This makes every flight more expensive and causes regular cancellations. It's as if Australia was an exclusive nightclub. And unless you're a VIP, you have to wait in line to get in. Even if you're a citizen. Even if you're in a dangerous situation. You know, I perfectly understand the need for quarantine and, and no drama about that whatsoever, but surely we should be able to come home when we're in dangerous countries. Julie could see the number of COVID cases in Turkey go up again 
and she couldn't help but worry. You know, I'm on the wrong side of 55 and, you know, it'll be probably quite devastating if I catch coronavirus. I, I, I don't know, you know, but I don't want to be putting myself in any risky situations. So we lock ourselves inside and hardly ever go outside and avoid people and avoid everything. And then in October, she got news from home. Now, when I left Australia, I had left my father behind, who was 90. And probably about a month and a half ago, I was informed that my father's heart is now only operating at 30% capacity. And I decided I have to get home. So I bit the bullet and I bought a business class ticket on Qatar Airways for January because that's the... I had to book so far in advance because it was the only time that I could afford to go. But then again, there is no guarantee that I will even set foot on that flight. I think by the time I actually set foot on that plane is when I'll actually believe it. Julie's mental health has suffered because of her circumstances. She called her GP back in Australia and tried to get some telehealth treatment. She said, look, we can try and help you until you get home. And I've gone, terrific, that's absolutely fabulous. But then the government has turned around and said, Medicare won't pay for it because I can't attend the GP face-to-face. This lack of support is not something Julie ever expected when she left Australia. I think the most surprising thing is I always thought that if we got into trouble through no fault of our own, that Australia would help help in some way. But the most surprising thing is the abandonment of Australian citizens overseas and you're left to your own devices. The government does offer some help to citizens overseas, as Glenn Potter discovered when he was forced to fly back to Australia. Without the help from them, there's no way I would be going home. Glenn had been living and working in France for the last five years. The reason he left Australia originally is similar to Julie's. Um, I met a French woman. (laughs) Say no more. (laughs) Once the early wave of COVID hit Europe in March, France went into hard lockdown. Glenn lost his seasonal job at a local food company. His visa was going to expire. And then, in April, things got even more complicated for him. I have a, a French-born child this year. It was born in, during the lockdown. Glenn was given a couple of temporary visas, one until June, the other till October. Because of the backlog of immigration paperwork in France, he was told it would take six months to a year for his new visa application to get processed. He had no money, no job, and without a visa, no right to work or even have health insurance in France. My only option was to go home, but how? After searching on Facebook groups, Glenn was told to apply for financial assistance from DFAT, the Department of Foreign Affairs and Trade. It involves a lot of paperwork. You really have to show that you are in desperation. It involved me doing my application, explaining my situation, and then I had to send all my bank statements, all my pay slips, my temporary visas, and my electricity bills, electricity, my phone, water. Just you had to show that what money you did have coming in was to pay to survive. DFAT even asked for contact numbers of family and friends 
to confirm that they can't lend you the money. Eventually, in late October, Glenn got an email saying his application had been approved. A huge weight lifted off his shoulders. The moment I read that email, I'm not going to lie, I cried. Seriously, I cried. Just from, just from happiness. It was like I won the lottery. Well, not exactly like the lottery. Unfortunately, it is a loan. Actually, it's a series of loans. There's one for the flight and one for living expenses. And then there's quarantine in Sydney, which usually costs $3,000. So in total, it's uh, $3,000, $6,500. And it's due in six months. Glenn is grateful for the assistance, and he can go on a payment plan if he needs to. But he wants to go back and see his son again soon. And he worries about where he'll live and what he'll do when he gets back to Melbourne in December. I've been inquiring about places to rent. I explained that I'm coming from France, so it's not possible to do an inspection. Um, when I arrive, I'll have to do quarantine, rada, rada, rada. I had one person tell me, we don't want your virus. Stay where you are. Even though their situations are different, Julie and Glenn will face similar hurdles when they return to Australia. So when I go back, I'm going to go back to um, no job, no home, no money. So I guess you know my life will significantly change um, because I've kind of hit rock bottom and at tender age of 58, I have to start again. And I'd never anticipated that. It's very concerning. It's already been a mental, physical and financial stress on so many people and this is what we have to return to. How are we going to find work? How are we going to find places to live? The quarantine caps can even make you feel like you're in a competition with others to get into the country. Julie even feels conflicted about trying to change to an earlier flight. I've actually had conversations with Qatar Airways, you know, pleading with them to try and get me home sooner because my father's health is really deteriorating. But there's really seems to be nothing that they can do and I can understand that and I feel bad about even having to ask because if they put me on a flight, it means that someone else is bummed, someone else that desperately wants to go home and it's just so unfair, you know. It's just really unfair. Every Australian stuck overseas that I spoke to told me that they're okay with hotel quarantine, that they understand we are in an unprecedented time and that they want everyone to be safe. But they also feel forgotten. They feel angry and ignored as if their very Australianness has been erased because they're stuck outside of the country. Julie and Glenn had never left Australia before they went to be with the people they loved. It was the first time either of them had ever had a passport. On the front page of the Australian passport, below the coat of arms and next to the golden wattle, there's a written statement, one sentence, asking for safe passage for the passport holder. Neither of them had noticed it before, but looking at it now, it can't help but make them wonder. The statement reads, 
the Governor-General of the Commonwealth of Australia, being the representative in Australia of Her Majesty Queen Elizabeth II, requests all those whom it may concern to allow the bearer, an Australian citizen, to pass freely without let or hindrance and to afford him or her every assistance and protection of which he or she may stand in need. That story was produced by Dan Seymour. The supervising producer was Sarah Mashman. All the Best would like to acknowledge the traditional owners of the lands on which we make these stories and pay our respects to elders, past, present and emerging. All the Best is made at FBI Radio in Sydney in association with SIND and 3RRR in Melbourne. Our executive producer is Ryan Pemberton. Mel Chun is our Victorian State Coordinator. The All the Best Community Coordinators are Chloe Gillespie and Danny Stewart. Our SIN Community Coordinator is Lee Robinson. Matilda Fay and Angela Moran are our social media producers. Shining Bird composed our theme music and Annie Hamilton designed the artwork. We're heard across Australia on the Community Radio Network and were made possible by the Community Broadcasting Foundation. You can find out more at cbf.org.au. You can find more episodes by searching for All the Best wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Maddie McQueen. Thanks for listening.